Beloved, please open your Bibles with me this morning to Mark chapter 2. To Mark chapter 2, we're beginning the second chapter in this Gospel of Mark this morning. And uh, we're doing so with a bang, with one of the, one of the most amazing um, confrontations and miracles that we see in the Gospel of Mark. So let's stand together and let's read this word. Let's read this account of the healing of the paralytic that leads to the revelation of the a greater revelation of the glory and the majesty of Christ. This is the word of the living God. And Mark records for us, beginning in verse 1, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately... Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to you and we bless you and thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself in your holy word that you've chosen to reveal your character, that you've chosen to reveal your person, that you've chosen to reveal your holiness and your plan for our redemption, you know, for, the, for the redemption of sinners in your holy word. That, Lord God, we don't have to try to reason our way to you, that there's no demand on us to try to, 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 try to you know, figure out who you are from our own faculties. But Lord God, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word. And what a revelation it is. Lord, as we dig into this text this morning, as our minds and our hearts are held captive by your word for these next several minutes, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work of, of grace, that you would do a, a, a work of sanctifying power, that, Lord God, you would move in our midst and that you would draw those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, you would draw them to yourself in the preaching of your word. And for those, Lord God, whose hearts are hardened, that you would soften them. And for those, Lord God, whose, whose hearts are perhaps, you know, wayward, that you would bring them back. We're asking, Lord God, that during this time of the preaching of your word, that you would work the very things that you promise in your word that your word can do in our midst. That's what we're praying for. Lord God, we know that your arm has, is not shortened, that you cannot save. 
we know, Lord God, that, that your ear is not deaf, that you cannot hear. And so we come before you, Lord God, desiring today that you would move mightily and, and for eternal good in our souls during this time. I pray, Lord, as it's been prayed, that you would empty me of myself and that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that you would grant me the unction of the Spirit of the living God so that the very words that I would speak, Lord God, that they would be empowered by you. That, Lord, that the, the preaching of the word and the preaching of this sermon this morning would not rest upon human logic or philosophy, but, Father, it would rest upon the power of your word exposited and the promise that you accomplish by your word everything that you intend when you send it forth. So, Lord God, please send forth your word in power and make me an instrument in your hands for for your good, for the praise of your good and praise of your glory. Let me be a servant to you, I pray, and a servant to these people. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. You know, beloved, the more that I study the gospel of Mark, and I, I really love this gospel, the more that I study it, the more I'm amazed at the intentionality of Mark. You know, the way that, remember, this is the first gospel that's written, and so he kind of sets the standards, the stage for what a, for what a gospel is supposed to be. And I love, as we're studying through this gospel, the way that Mark is so intentional in everything that he does. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the very first part of chapter 1, you remember, the first half or, you know, maybe a little less, Mark is intentional to, to introduce and then authenticate the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, right? And we saw how he did it. He did it by explaining, first of all, that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, right? Then he described and, and explained how John served as the, the, the forerunner to his ministry to prepare the way of the Lord who is coming to his people. We saw how Jesus presented himself as the Savior and the substitute for sinners by identifying with us in John's baptism, right? A baptism that was a picture of judgment, right? And then rising again to a new life. We saw the authentication of the Lord Jesus as, as God's Son and, and, and the divine approval of the Father by virtue of the voice that came from heaven and the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him, signifying that he was anointed for the ministry for which God had prepared him, right? And then, at you know, we, before we, we saw this concise summary in verses 14 and 15 of the content of Jesus' preaching ministry, right? It's all great stuff. It's foundational stuff. But Mark doesn't stop there. After he establishes for us the, 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 or introduces the, the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, then in the second half of this chapter, Mark describes for us the divine authority which the Lord Jesus Christ possesses. And he does it by using representative moments from his ministry. Like he's not telling us everything that Jesus did, right? He couldn't do that. But he gives us representative moments in his ministry to underscore and describe his authority and his power, right? He shows us, first of all, Christ's authority over the will of men and women through the irresistible calling of his first four disciples, right? He calls and they come, and they can't help but do it, right? Then we saw the way that, that Mark showed us Christ's authority in in his teaching and his preaching, right? The mastery of divine truth as he taught in the synagogue in a way that no one had ever heard before. Then he shows us Christ's authority 
over the spiritual realm by casting out demons, right? His authority over sickness and over disease. His authority to cleanse and recreate a leper, right? The evidence for his, for his identity and for his authority. When we get to the end of Mark chapter 1, is overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, that's the point. By the time we get to the end of this first chapter, with 15 more to go... Mark wants to have established, not that they had chapters back then, but in this very beginning, he wants to have established in our hearts a clear understanding of the identity and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And I want to say something to you about that for just a moment, okay? I want to just say a little something about that. Let me just say that it's not a lack of proof, nor is it a lack of authenticated evidence or solid testimony that keeps men and women from coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an issue of a lack of evidence. It's not an issue of these things aren't authenticated. The issue is not a lack of evidence. The issue is a stubborn refusal to believe what is clearly the truth. It is a hardened and a sinful and a perverse heart that refuses to believe the truth and so be saved. Beloved, here's what I'm getting at. You can talk until you are blue in the face to somebody about the facts of Scripture, okay? And I'm saying facts very deliberately, okay? Because sometimes people will speak of Christianity as if they're just beliefs that are built on nothingness. That's not reality. What we teach from the book is firmly established by the authenticating power of the living God and the men that he chose to write and to preserve these accounts for us. And so here's the deal. When people say to me, I just, I, it, there's just not enough evidence. What I will say to them is you're not being intellectually honest. You're lying to yourself because you believe a lot of things with a lot less evidence. Insert government joke there, but I won't right now. It's not an issue of there's not enough proof. It's an issue of your heart. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of a heart that loves sin and hates God. And so you can spend all of your energy trying to, to convince somebody. But the reality is this. People refuse to behold the truth of the living God. They refuse to acknowledge the truth of the living God until their hearts of stone are regenerated and made hearts of flesh. Are you hearing me? So Mark clearly laid out here the evidence for the divine authority of Christ. And now, beginning this morning, Mark is going to present a series to us of five challenges to Christ's authority by the religious elite of his day. In fact, starting here and running through chapter 3 and verse 6, we're going to see a series of five challenges by the religious elite, by the Pharisees, or by the scribes to Christ's authority. And what's ironic about all of this, what is ironic about all of this, is that these challenges will only serve to establish the unique greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ more and more fully than Mark already has. So it begins this morning, this series of five begins, we're just going to look at one this morning, right? Because y'all want to go have lunch. You want to go home and have lunch today. But it begins with the Lord's not-so-quiet return to Capernaum. Okay, look at this with me. Mark describes the scene first in verses 1 and 2. He says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. We're God around, right? And 
Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now, remember what's going on, right? When we left chapter 1 last week, the Lord's preaching tour in the towns that were you know, all over Galilee, that had been cut short. It had been cut short because of the response that took place, everything that took place following the events you know, that took place following the cleansing of the leper, right? First of all, he didn't keep his mouth shut, right? Everybody there saw what was going on. It was impossible for Jesus to keep doing ministry in the city, so he had to withdraw out into the wilderness, and people came out there to him, right? But with that ministry tour over, right, Mark tells us that he returned to Capernaum. He returned to his base of operations in the region of Galilee, and that base of operations um, was, was Simon Peter's home. That's, that's where he was. He was in the home of Simon Peter. And so as soon as everybody heard that Jesus was back, you know, what did they do? Did they give him a moment to settle in? No, they didn't. Instead, they started coming by droves, right? Coming by droves, filling up the house to the point that no one could even get in through the front door, right? They just all start showing up. There's this huge crowd that packs out, Peter's house, right? I'm sure, I'm sure Mrs. Simon Peter was so happy, you know, to have so many people there, right? Not quite. Anyway, Mark doesn't tell us about the composition of of the crowd, but I want us to think about it for a moment because it's really important. It's really important that we understand who's here and why they're here, okay? We know from Luke that the crowd that was here was not just composed of the residents of, of Capernaum. It wasn't just people from out of Capernaum. In fact, we know from Luke that there were scribes and Pharisees. There a contingent of Pharisees and scribes from every village of Galilee and Judea. And not just that, scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem, okay? So when Jesus returns to his base of operations, the architects and the promoters of salvation by works, the, the architects, architects and promoters of, of salvation by self-righteousness, of the apostate Judaism that could save no one, they were there. They were coming to hear Jesus speak. But they weren't coming because they wanted to hear and learn, okay? Okay. In fact, Luke goes, was very specific to say that they were sitting there. They were seated listening to Jesus. Well, why is that a big deal, preacher? Here's why. Because, you know, in the old days, the way that preaching took place in the ancient Near East was this. It was the one who was doing the preaching sat and everybody else stood. We might go back to that next week. Nah. But, but that's how it was done, Right? And so when these guys come in and they take a seat, what they're saying to everybody in that room without saying it is, we're in charge here. We're the ones who determine whether or not what he has to say has validity or not. We are the ones who sit in judgment on the words of this traveling rabbi. We've heard about him, so here we are to give you our opinion of the traveling Jesus. Then, besides those guys, there are, you know, general the the general crowd from Capernaum and they were a mixed bag right some of them were perhaps genuinely interested in hearing the Lord preach but because Capernaum was later expressly chastened by Jesus for their unbelief in his you know later on in his ministry probably most of these people were just curious they were just you know looking to be entertained in fact 
James Edwards, a commentator, wrote these words. He said, he makes this observation. He says, in the Gospel of Mark, it's important to observe that the crowds who are always gathering around Jesus are, spiritually speaking, almost always either only curious or passive. However excited or impressed they might be at the moment by Jesus' teaching or the miracles that he performed. In fact, he says, they serve more to obstruct access to Jesus than as a proof of the Lord's success in reaching the people. Being part of a great crowd gathered to hear or to observe Jesus is very clearly not the same thing as being one of his followers or disciples. He's right. He's right. Still, the Lord Jesus Christ is not giving in to sort of the unspoken expectation of more miracles from Jesus, right? He's not giving into it. Instead, he's preaching the word. He's preaching the word. Words of grace were falling from Christ's lips as he preached the gospel of salvation and the gospel of the kingdom and the way that you entered the kingdom through repentance and faith in him. He was preaching the very words of God, the gospel that saves souls because faith comes from hearing the word of Christ, right? So Christ is staying to his plan. He's preaching the word. He's preaching. He's not healing. He's not casting out demons. He's preaching. And while he is preaching, the intensity of the moment is all of a sudden shattered by this divinely ordained interruption, by this divinely ordained, you know, church crashing moment, right? Mark tells us, starting in verse 3, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Man, we need to really view this in our mind's eyes because this is crazy. The Lord is in the middle of preaching, right? The Lord Jesus is in the middle of preaching and teaching when all of a sudden there is this racket that everybody hears that's going on up on the roof. Four men show up. Four men show up and they bring with them this friend who is paralyzed so that he can see the Lord in the hope that the Lord Jesus will heal him, right? In the hope that that the Lord Jesus will, will do something for him. But the path to Jesus was blocked. It was blocked by this crowd. This crowd that was so intent upon keeping their eyes upon Jesus. And let's just be honest too, pretty rude. I mean, wouldn't you, if, if you're in a crowd like that and you see a guy that's being carried, a paralytic that's being carried by four of his buddies, wouldn't it just make sense, you know, to, if you're a kind human being in the least, that you'd maybe move out of the way so that he could have access to Jesus, the healer? Wouldn't you do that? But not these people, right? It's like they're at a Taylor Swift concert, although I had no idea why you'd want to be there. Anyway, they're all stuffed in there, right? And so these guys come up with a, 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 a workaround. And their workaround is, let's just go up on the roof. Let's just go up on the roof and, and dig a hole in the roof and let him right down in front of Jesus. Like, I don't know who the genius is that comes up with that idea, right? But imagine how you've got to go about doing that. Like, they've got to probably kind of get a visual of where Jesus is in the house, right? Like, you don't want to be digging way over in the wrong spot, pulling out, you know, making up big hole, and, you know, you go to lower yourself in, and, oh, whoops, you're not Jesus, right? You don't want to do that. Then you've got to fight the crowd again to get over to them. So these guys are, like, triangulating the whole thing, right? In the days before you triangulated stuff, they're triangulating it. 
And they figure out a way to, to drop this guy down right in front of Jesus' feet, right? So they go to work. And I want to tell you a little bit about a roof in those days, and especially a roof that would have been on a structure like Simon Peter's house. We, we sometimes get the idea that Simon Peter was like a poor guy. He wasn't. Simon Peter was a fisherman. And not just a fisherman, he's a fisherman who owned boats. He was a fisherman. Like, they, they you know, fishing was, was not like this, it was kind of like dangerous catch. You know what I mean? Like, you made money being a fisherman. And a lot of the fish that fed the Middle East came right out of the Sea of Galilee. So we sometimes get this idea that, you know, Peter just went and he followed the Lord Jesus because he had nothing to lose because he didn't have, you know, two pennies to pinch together. That's not true. That's not true. And so if you would go to his house, this is what the house would have been like. Here's what the roof would have been like, right? It was a multi-layered structure, right? It was a multi-layered structure. It consisted of timbers that you would lay parallel to each other, you know, that were about three feet apart. And then on top of that, you would take bundles of sticks, right, that you'd kind of rope together and you would lay them crosswise on those timbers. And then on a house like Peter's, you'd throw some mud on there and kind of smooth it out a little bit. Then you'd place tiles. Then you weren't, you weren't even finished then. Then what you would do is you would pack a, like a foot of dirt on top of that. Okay, and just really pack it down hard so that there would be very little leakage. And so by the time you got done with it, the, the, the roof was like two feet thick. So this takes a demo day if you're going to get through this roof. In fact, grass grew on top of the roof quite often. And it was used as like an outdoor patio where you could eat or you could just relax or you would spend time praying or whatever. Like this wasn't just an incidental part of the house. Like the roof was used. And these guys, for them to get their friend to Jesus required an ex excavation of sorts. Now again, imagine that. Every preacher deals with distractions, right? Some bother some guys more than others. Like some guys, like John MacArthur doesn't like crying babies. No, really, he doesn't. Like, he's talked about how as soon as he sees a crying baby go out the door of the sanctuary, he's thankful to the Lord that that baby's been removed when they're crying while he's preaching, right? I, I, I don't have that. Like, kids are crying. To me, that's like a sound of life in the congregation. It doesn't bother me, right? But, you know, I've, I've been heckled before at the, at the rescue mission by a dude, like, in the second row, right? I've had, you know, I've, I've, I've preached in a blackout. I've preached outside in a thunderstorm. That was kind of rough. Remember having a fire one time in Texas, the fire alarm here a few years. Remember that a few years ago? Um, I'm sure there's other stuff that I'm forgetting. Um, but I've never experienced anything like this. Like, what do you do? You, you begin to hear the roof being scratched away, right? And you know, you hear this, this muffled digging. You hear the sound of tiles breaking and thatching being pulled away. You hear, the muffled, you hear the muffled voices of guys that are at work, right? And you know how that is. If you've ever done any work like this with any guys, right, they're digging and, and, and they're spending a lot of time appreciating the work they're doing rather than just getting it done, right? And so here they are. They're doing all of this. And can you imagine, you know, as stuff is like falling on top of you, dirt and debris, can you imagine how distracting that would be? And then all of a sudden, the sunlight breaks through the roof as the last bit of thatching and stuff is, is pulled away and you see four sweaty-faced guys like peering down in looking at you like this, you know? That's not unnerving. And then they drop him in. They drop this guy in. You know, preaching time's over, right? And there's no way to get it back after that. But the Lord Jesus isn't annoyed at all. Instead, Mark says in verse 5, look at it. When Jesus saw their faith, 
He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. There is a world of meaning, a world of teaching in those words, beloved. I want you to look, I want you to look with me, look at this with me first, and I want you to notice these words, Jesus saw their faith. How do you see somebody's faith? How do you see somebody's faith, right? I mean, think about it. No doubt the Lord Jesus Christ could have just perceived their hearts and, his, and their thoughts as he does here in a moment with the scribes. We'll get to that in a second, right? But, but there's more to it than this, right? Like their faith was seen, and I heard somebody say in their actions. Their faith was seen in their actions. Their faith was seen in the fact that this paralyzed man had been moved to ask his friends to take him to see Jesus. And the faith of these men motivated them to do whatever they had to do in order to get him to the Lord Jesus Christ, including ripping somebody's roof off. Their faith motivated them to, and moved them to action in a big way. But I wanna, I wanna just stop there for a moment and I want us to ask ourselves a question. What kind of faith do these men possess? You ever thought about that? What kind of faith do these men possess? And what do I mean by that? Well, this could either be, this, this could be merely natural faith. It could just be natural faith. What I mean by that is this. Listen, it's the kind of faith, natural faith is, it's the kind of faith that you have when you undergo surgery and you expect that you're going to be made well. You're going to wake up well, right? It's the kind of faith that, you know, if you go out to dinner, you're not going to end up with food poisoning, right? Unless you buy sushi at, you know, sheets. That's not a good idea, right? Or it's the kind of natural faith that if you jump from a perfectly good aircraft, your parachute's going to open up. When you pull the ripcord, right? Natural faith, beloved, is faith that is based on your, on your experience or on the experience of other people. You follow with me? It's not supernatural necessarily. Certainly, these guys had, had heard about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to heal all sorts of diseases, right? That he could heal fever and blindness and broken limbs and even lepers, right? And you remember that in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus had healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, then that night, everybody in Capernaum came and brought everybody that was sick so that Jesus would heal them. But we would not say that Capernaum had a supernatural faith in the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, would we? They just believed, this guy's a miracle worker. We need a miracle. We don't have anything else to do. We've had no luck anywhere else. Let's go for this, Right? And so you got to ask yourself, you know, what kind of faith do these men have? Is it just an expectation that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to heal their buddy as he had so many others? We don't know. You know what? We don't know about the faith of these four friends that brought, Je brought this paralytic to Jesus. We don't know. Jesus doesn't address it. In fact, nobody does. You know what we do know? We know for certain about the faith of the paralytic man. We know for certain about that man's faith. We know exactly about it. Because when Jesus laid eyes on him, he said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. What do we make of that? What do we make of that? Beloved, here's what we've got to say. Knowing the whole counsel of God, we know that no one is forgiven of sin apart from repentance and faith as Jesus, in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. True? True? We know that. Scripture is very clear on that. And so what this is telling us is that this paralytic man, 
Somehow, by God's grace and by the revelation of the Holy Spirit to his heart, this man had come to know and believe that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah of God who could take away sin. And Christ saw that God wrought faith and he forgave him. It might even be that he was regenerated, born again on the spot. We don't know. But we know that his faith was different, or at least Jesus acknowledged his faith in a way that he did not acknowledge the faith of those four men, right? He trusted, this paralytic did, in the authority of Jesus to forgive his sins. Here's the thing. Paralysis in Jesus' day was always, always considered to be the consequence of personal sin against God. Not just sin in the world. Your personal sin. People viewed paralytics. You remember the Pharisee even doing this with the blind guy. Who sinned? Him or his parents, right? Paralysis was always viewed to be the consequence of personal sin against God. Some evil thing that you had done and God had rewarded you with this. Now we don't know whether that was the case with this man or not. We can't be sure. But here's one thing that we can be certain of. Jesus spoke these words of forgiveness because that's what this man needed more than anything else. It's what he needed more than anything else. Even more than physical health. The word here that's used for forgiveness is a word, a fiamai, that is a word that means to send off or to hurl away. It's, it's the beautiful picture of the nature of forgiveness, right? Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jesus forgave this man on the spot. And the idea of, of, of the words that he spoke are, are these. You are now and you remain forever forgiven. You are now, and you remain forever forgiven. Beloved, it's a gift of infinite price. And I'm going to say something here that you can take to the bank. If Christ had stopped here and done nothing more for this man, if he had come in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, and then sent him back home paralyzed, listen to me, he would still have given him the greatest gift of infinite value. He would have done everything that this man truly needed. He would have done everything for him. The forgiveness of sins, peace with God. It is the greatest gift of infinite value whether your body is healed or it remains broken until you die and see Jesus face to face. How we need to hear that? I'll come back to that in a moment. This is a tremendous moment. It's a divinely ordained interruption. Why do I say that? Why did I title this a divinely ordained interruption? Well, let me ask you a question, beloved. How do you think this guy got here? And we look at it from a physical sense. We say, well, his friends brought him, right? Yeah, that's true. His friends brought him. But why? What's really behind this? What's really behind these, these men exercising energy to bring this guy to the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll tell you what's behind it. It's that the Father drew him. God the Father drew him, right? Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37, and then verse 44, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. When Jesus looks at this paralytic, you know, when he, when he looks on this crippled, paralyzed man, he sees one of his elect whom God has drawn to him on this very day, one for whom Jesus came to die, right? One for whom he has come to be the wrath bearer, one that he's come to redeem. In fact, it is the very first time in Mark's gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ actually personally forgives a sinner. Very first time. We can infer, you know, that was the case with the, with the leper, sure. But this is the first time that Jesus actually says to someone, your sins are forgiven. It's an awesome moment. And it's not a light one either. Right? Jesus doesn't say this lightly. He knows He says this knowing full well the bitterness and the agony of the cross that awaits him. He says this knowing full well that he could only say these words and mean them because he was going to take this man's sin upon himself and pay it in full. Suffer hell on the cross in his place. These are costly words for Jesus to speak. Well, why doesn't Jesus just, why doesn't he heal the man first and then give him forgiveness? Why does Jesus do it in this order? Right? People have asked that. This is a peculiar order. Why wouldn't, he just, why wouldn't he heal him first and then declare that his sins have been forgiven? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Well, the first, first thing we need to see is that it's to show us, this order is to show us that the core of Christ's mission and the most vital need for every human being is the forgiveness of sins. Now contrast that for a moment with what would have been the perception of the crowd and even the disciples, Right? When that guy came in, and, or actually came in, when he was lowered in right from the ceiling, and he's laying there palsied on this mattress, you know what it's like. We look at that, and our first thought is, is to somehow, somehow, you know, answer that, that human suffering that we see, right? That that's the most important thing. Oh, this poor man could just walk. Oh, this poor man could just sit up straight. Oh, this poor man could just whatever, right? And everybody is thinking that way. But the fact that Jesus deals with his soul first highlights for us the primacy. That means the supreme importance of the forgiveness of sins. Because what, would, what good would it have been if Jesus had healed this man's body, right? Made him look like the statue of David, and left his soul untouched and condemned. What good is that? Unforgiven sin, beloved, is worse than paralysis of every limb. It's worse than every malady, any malady that you can suffer. Jesus came into the world primarily to forgive sin and to rescue sinners from the judgment that we deserve and to give his life as an atonement for sin. And that truth is being driven home here in the order in which Christ does things. Can I tell you what? The tragedy of American evangelicalism, modern evangelicalism, is around the turn of the 20th century, the mainline church in America as a whole stopped believing in the sinfulness of sin and the chief need for forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. The old-time gospel. Give me that old-time religion. Early 20th century, it was get rid of the old-time religion. That old-time gospel was seen as too graphic, it was too negative, it was too, you know, offensive, it was unattractive to modern man. And so the mainline church felt the need to reinvent the gospel so that they could get people to still come to church. And the message that it chose was the gospel of self-improvement, life improvement, life enhancement. The gospel became 
primarily about Jesus will give you happiness and Jesus will give you love and Jesus will give you personal fulfillment and Jesus will give you a happy family and Jesus will give you personal success and significance. He'll give you a healthy self-image and good health, etc. Whatever the latest emphasis happened to be in society, secular society, Jesus could give it to you better all the way down through the decades. And all of it to the minimizing and the exclusion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus. In fact, John MacArthur rightly said, he said, the Christian faith has many truths, values, and virtues, each of which has countless applications in the life of believers. But its supreme, overarching good news is that sinful men can be fully cleansed and brought into eternal fellowship with the holy God. What every man and woman needs, what they must have, is the forgiveness of sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not anything else. Forgiveness of sins, beloved, listen to me, committed against the holy God who will call all people to account on the day of judgment. Listen, that's not an add-on to anything else. It's not the, you know, fringe benefit to my significant life. The gospel of the forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ is the essential message of the gospel. And if you get any of those other things, that's the fringe benefit. You hearing me? It's the central issue of the gospel. That's the first thing we need to see. And then second, the Lord Jesus Christ deals with this man in the way that he does in order to expose the hearts of the religious leaders that are sitting there. He does. He knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus, Jesus is the master over this entire situation. He knows exactly what he is doing. And he goes in this order, secondly, so that he can expose the hearts of these religious leaders that had come to hear him and to place these guys on the horns of, the, of a dilemma. They've got to deal with the question of who Jesus really is. And they're not going to have any option because Jesus orchestrates it that way. That statement Son, your sins are forgiven. That was deliberately provocative. And it, it immediately leads to a challenge to Christ's authority. Look at it. Look with me in the, in the immediate reaction of these scribes, verses 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but Christ alone? Now, take note here that they don't actually voice their challenge out loud, do they? Do they? They're not talking amongst themselves. They're not, they not talking amongst themselves about this. They're questioning it within their hearts. We'll come back to that in a moment. Okay, we'll come back to that in a moment. But here's what I want us to see, right? We're accustomed, as soon as we see scribes or Pharisees or, or Sadducees in the Scripture, our immediate reaction is to do what? Uh, yeah, recoil. We just, you know, we want to beat them with the, with, you know, the sword of the Spirit, Right? But before we just hammer these guys, before we just hammer these guys, I want us to, to enter into what they're thinking a little bit. Because believe it or not, they actually deserve a little bit of credit here. Can you believe I said that? What, what happened to you, man? Did you just have a stroke on, at the pulpit? Like, mini stroke? You all right? Yeah, no, I'm fine. There's some things here that are commendable. And the first thing that I would say is this, is that we need to actually... We need to actually see here and, and, and give them, you know, a little bit of consideration for the fact that they recognize that there's actually such thing as blasphemy. They actually recognize 
that there is such a thing as blasphemy. And I say that because I'm not sure that our age really believes in blasphemy anymore. I don't think it does, in fact. I don't think it does. I think about what we, what we consider to be okay entertainment, whether it's music or movies or even books. And I wonder if the church actually believes in blasphemy anymore or if we just tolerate it. I hope you're squirming a little bit. Blasphemy, right, at least in part, is the sin of speaking sinfully about God or, or speaking sinfully about the things that pertain to God or invoking Christ's name in an inappropriate or a trivial way. Really, it's irreverence before God, right? That's what it is. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. When the very idea of a glorious and a holy God a God who inhabits eternity and dwells in unapproachable light. A God who reigns in power and majesty over all of the creation and to whom we must give an account of our lives. When the idea, the very idea of that kind of God is absent from the minds of men and women, the secular culture, even the professing church, how can there be anything? How can there be any such thing as blasphemy? If there's no reverence for God, how can there be irreverence? You hear me? Blasphemy is not even on the radar in America. If it is, some of the greatest pop stars would no longer be pop stars. Some of the greatest, you know, most popular actors and actresses would have to actually find honest work to do. Some politicians wouldn't be allowed in public. A host of pastors would resign. And those who were convicted in the professing church, you know, those who were blasphemers in the, in the Christian church would get saved. So let's give the scribes some credit. They actually believed in the reality of blasphemy, that that was a serious thing. But here's the deal. In the Lord's case, in the Lord Jesus' case, it wasn't that he was speaking trivially about God. Trivially about God. It was that he was making himself out to be God. That was the issue for them. He was making himself out to be God. You know, when I hear people sometimes will say, Jesus never claimed to be God in the Gospels. I'm like, dude, just read this. Take the blinders off. These guys are not upset and reasoning in their hearts that Jesus is a blasphemer because he's not suggesting he's God. He was making himself out to be God. That's why the scribes were up in arms. And there's a logic to their train of thought. Look, who can fully and completely forgive sin? Only God, right? Why is that? Because ultimately all sin is against who? Him. Now that doesn't mean that we're not to, you know, seek forgiveness from others or receive, you know, the, the request for forgiveness from others when they sin against us or we sin against them. That's, that's not what I'm saying, right? That's not the point. But the issue here is that ultimate forgiveness before the Lord, forgiveness that grants salvation, right? Only God can give that. And so in that logic, that correct logic, the scribes and the Pharisees are thinking, this man must be a blasphemer, right? Because no priest and no prophet, no preacher, no rabbi can forgive sins. That's the province of God alone. So, so when Jesus pronounces this man's sin to be forgiven, either Jesus is God or Jesus is a blasphemer, and there's not a third option, right? There's not a third option. Because for anybody that was a mere man to pronounce somebody forgiven in the eternal sense, that's blasphemous. And the scribes knew it. And their logic it holds tight. Here's the problem. It's not with their logic. It's where they began the argument. The problem, beloved, is not with their logic. It's with their foundational and erroneous presupposition that Jesus is a mere man. That's the problem. When you start there, you always get it wrong. It's a presupposition that is about to be shattered in, before their very eyes by two miracles. Like, 
they, they are rationalizing this in their brain. Their logic is, they believe in blasphemy, good on them. Their logic is sound except where they start from. And now that's going to be exposed with two miracles, right? With two miracles. Look with me, starting in verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Two miracles. First, the Lord Jesus Christ omnisciently reads and perceives their thoughts. That's miracle number one, right? That's miracle number one. Let that sink in for a moment. Only, only God can see and perceive the thoughts of every human heart, ours included, right? Nothing is hidden to him. Your heart is not hidden to him, Right? You would think that the one place that you have data security, right, would be in your heart. And Jesus says, nope, not quite. He reads their minds. It's like David said, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, Or Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. That's kind of unnerving, isn't it? Just a little bit. That had to be unnerving for these guys, right? Imagine how they must have been squirming in that moment. What was I thinking a minute before? Did he catch that too, right? Imagine how they must have been squirming here. Their hearts are laid bare before Jesus. Their thoughts aren't even private, right? He knows all that they're thinking. And so he asks them a curious and a profound question that goes right to the heart of the matter. This is great. Look what he says. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Which is easier? How do you even answer that question? You ever think about that? Like, this is not an easy question. How do you, how do you reason this one out, right? Because both of those things, right, both of those statements, to forgive somebody or to actually heal a paralytic, both of those things are beyond the power of a mere man to say without any real effect, right? So what's Jesus getting at here? Most likely, he's, he, you know, he, he's doing this. This is what I think it is. That, you know, from the perspective of the scribes, what would be the easier of the two things for somebody to say? Well, the easier of the two things to say would be your sins are forgiven, right? Because to say that your sins are forgiven to somebody it's a lot easier than saying rise and walk because you can't verify, you know, the, the results. If I say to somebody, your sins are forgiven you, there's no way to verify that, right? You don't have the power. I don't have the power to look at somebody else's heart, and we don't have the ability to ascend into the throne room of the Almighty and find out who is and who is not justified, right? We don't know. There's no way to tell that, to figure that out. But if you say rise and walk, Bubba, you, I'll tell you what, that better be accompanied with the results or you are exposed in a heartbeat as a charlatan and a fraud, right? Like if I went into the hospital and started pointing at people saying, rise and walk, take out your IV, put on your clothes and go home, I'd be in the hospital because they think I had a mental break, right? To say rise and walk better be accompanied with results. That's what the scribes would think. And Jesus knew it. He knew it was in the heart of man. He didn't have to have anybody tell him, Right? John says. And so the Lord's in complete control of the situation. And he's setting up a proof of his authority. And here it is. If he can make a paralytic rise and walk, which requires divine authority and power, then these religious leaders need to take seriously his authority to forgive sins, right? So he puts the question to them. What's funny is they didn't even get a chance to answer it. 
There, there's no chance to even answer. And Jesus, instead, Jesus just says, well, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he did it. Now, that's masterful, is it not? That is masterful. Jesus puts the question to him and then says, we're not even going to waste time for you guys fumbling around for answer. I'll just show you. Right? And he calls himself here the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus, I'm sorry, where Daniel explains the source of the Son of Man's power, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Daniel writes there, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not pass be destroyed. You know what I love about this? Jesus doesn't back away from his identity here at all, does he? Instead, he quotes, you know, from, uh, describes himself as the son of man, quoting from Daniel chapter 7 to explain the source of his authority and of his everlasting power. It's awesome. It's just, can you imagine being there? Like, I mean, in essence, what Jesus is saying, so that you know that I have the authority to, to, to forgive sins, I'll just make it evident. And he speaks to the paralytic these words that heal him in an instant. If you're the scribes and you see that, what can you do with that one? Oh, that, did, that didn't happen. Yeah, it did. Well, uh, it could have been spontaneous. It could have been whatever, right? All these arguments. Believe, believe my narrative rather than your own eyes, right? They see this. How can a blasphemer do this? I mean, they were reasoning in their minds that Jesus is a blasphemer. How does a blasphemer do this? At Simon Peter's house on a Sabbath when he's teaching, or I guess, it's a, I guess it wouldn't be, a, it might not be a Sabbath, it might just be a regular, any old day. But there he is preaching and he's teaching. And you know what? He gives irrefutable evidence that requires everyone who is present in that house listening to him preach to acknowledge that he is either the Son of Man to whom God has given dominion and glory and authority and an everlasting kingdom, and because of that, he, is, he has the authority to forgive sin, or he's a blasphemer. Which one is it? Which one is it? There's not a third option. Because here's the thing. If with a word he can do creation-level miracles, which is what healing a paralytic is, right? We don't know how he's paralyzed. It could have been a million things. It might have been a disease. He might have severed his spinal cord. He might have, you know, it, it might have been some kind of psychosis. People get paralyzed through that. We don't know what it was. But Jesus does a creation-level miracle, recreating and causing a paralyzed man to be completely whole and restored. And if he can do that, then he has divine authority, man. He is God. And if he's God, he's got the authority to forgive sin because only God can do it. Add it all up. Man, blasphemers don't read minds. Jesus did. Blasphemers don't create new and healthy bodies. Jesus did. Blasphemers cannot forgive sins. Jesus did. The only one who can do all those things is God. And the proof is inescapable. But I want you to see something with me here, beloved. I want you to see this with me. I don't want us to miss here sort of the irony in all of this. Though it's easier in a way, right, to say... Your sins are forgiven. To be able to say that with effect, to be able to say that in truth is far more difficult than healing a paralytic. 
Stay with me on this. It takes more to, heal, to, to, to forgive sins than it took God to create the entire universe. To accomplish the forgiveness of sins requires more than a word. You understand? It requires more than a word. It requires more than just the extension of divine power. Okay? It demands the incarnation. It demands Christ's perfect life of sinless obedience to God. It demands that Jesus conquer Satan and temptation. It demands the suffering and the agony of obedience to God. The suffering and, and the agony of obedience to God on the cross. The mighty resurrection from the dead. His ascension to the right hand of God with all authority and power entrusted to him. The salvation of man and all that it includes requires far more than a word. It requires divine work that makes that word effectual and true. Are you with me? Spurgeon said, in the deepest sense, it is indeed a work to save a soul. If Niagara could suddenly be made to leap upward instead of forever dashing downward from its rocky height... It were not such a miracle as to change the perverse will and raging passions of men. To wash the Ethiop white, to remove the leopard spots, is proverbially a difficulty, yet these are but surface works. To renew the very core of manhood and tear sin from its hold upon a man's heart. This is not alone the finger of God. It is the bearing of his arm. It is a work indeed. Amen. And so healing a man of paralysis, though it may be more visibly impressive when it's compared to what's required for your forgiveness of sins and my forgiveness of sins, beloved, it is far, far easier to do. Nevertheless, Jesus speaks the word, right? In Mark, the, Mark chapter, 12, chapter 2, verse 12, first part of it says, And he rose and he immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all. Jesus said he went home, or Luke says he went home glorifying God. He went home glorifying God, praising and glorifying God. You know what he did? He did exactly what you would expect someone would do if they just experienced what he experienced. Right? I mean, you expect somebody who has been given full cleansing of their sins, past, present, and future, in an instant, right? The verdict laid out by the Son of God. You would expect that person to rejoice, would you not? Didn't you when you found out you were saved? I did, and I wasn't quiet about it. It wasn't like, oh, thank you, Jesus. You kidding me? You should never be quiet about that. We should be exuberant in our joy that, that Christ has saved us. This guy went home glorifying and magnifying, extolling and praising and worshiping and speaking well of God. You know why? Because he just saw the Son of God face to face. He just saw him face to face. The one who'd forgiven his sins and then healed his body. He knew who he was praising. And he let her rip. I hope, beloved, that when on Sundays when you're on vacation, you're visiting somewhere else, I hope you get the stares that my family sometimes get when we're singing the praise songs at the beginning of the service. We're all standing there together, you know, in a group and singing. And people do this. You know, and turn around at us and stuff. It's always funny because as soon as it's over, the worship guy comes up to us. Are you, no, are you guys new to the area? I'm like, yeah, but we're leaving at the end of the week. Sorry, you know. There's thrill here. There's thrill in his heart, right? He's rejoicing. He's grateful. He's thankful. Nobody can shut him up, right? He goes home glorifying God. He obeys Jesus, unlike the leper, right? Remember that guy? He obeys Jesus. Hey, get up, take up your bed, go home. Yes, sir. Right? And he does it. So there's him. 
Mark, though, doesn't tell us about specifically the scribes. You notice that? He doesn't tell us about the scribes' reaction here. But he does tell us about the rest of the crowd. And, you know, we read the same old tired response. I wonder if it ever bothered the Lord that this is the best he got in Capernaum so often. They're amazed, right? But they're oblivious. They're oblivious to the true meaning of what they just witnessed. Look at it, second half of verse 12. Mark tells us that after seeing all this take place, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, that was amazing, right? The idea there is that the crowd is moved. They're kind of knocked outside of themselves, you know? They're shaken, they're astonished, they're amazed. That's the idea here, right? They're shocked at the power of God that just got revealed, just got displayed in the authority of Jesus, right? And even more, they're glorifying God. That's good, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be like, you know, the rain cloud here. They glorified God, wonderful. Here's the problem. They stopped short of glorifying God in the flesh who was before their very eyes. Do you see that? They glorified God, they didn't glorify Jesus. They didn't magnify Christ. They didn't glorify Christ by believing on him. The best they can say is, we never saw anything like this. No, duh. But they failed to come to the point of the decision and the conclusion that Christ's display of authority demanded. They missed the point. Jesus proves conclusively he's the son of God, the son of man, with authority to forgive sins, and they missed it. They all missed it, but that paralytic. You know, on that day, this man's life was forever changed. Forever changed, right? The trajectory of his life was altered forever. He saw the Lord face to face. His, you know, his forgiveness with God and an eternity in heaven forever fixed because the Jesus who could make him walk was the Christ who could forgive his sins. And who knows how long this man had been a paralytic, right? How long? He might have been a young man, still with a chance at a life ahead of him, 22, 23. 20. Maybe he was 45. Maybe the guy was 60. And he'd never been married, and he had no kids, and he had no wife, and he had no family. He had nothing because of this paralysis. And yet I think J.C. Ryle hits the nail on the head when he says this. So listen to what he says here. He says, who can doubt that to the end of his days, this man would thank God for his paralysis? Without it, he might probably have lived and died in ignorance and never had seen Christ at all. Without it, he might have kept his sheep on the green hills of Galilee all his life long and never been brought to Christ and never heard these blessed words, your sins are forgiven. That paralysis was indeed a blessing. Who can tell, but it was the beginning of eternal life to his soul. In fact, how many in every age can testify that this paralyzed man's experience has been their own? Thousands can say like David, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Amen. So what does Mark mean for us to take away from this account? I think there are two big takeaways that we've got to take from this text. The first one is this, is that the Son of Man indeed has the authority on earth to forgive sins, and the forgiveness of sins is still the one thing that we all need most of all. Isn't that true? In our psychologized world, it seems to me that we're more concerned today whether or not we're forgiving ourselves. Well, you need to forgive yourself. You need to forgive yourself. You're not a God. Who, what are you talking about? You need to forgive yourself. It seems we're more concerned with that than whether or not God has forgiven all our sins. Whether we're forgiving ourselves or God has forgiven us. 
Because the forgiveness of sins is the one thing we need the most of all. Listen, we either are forgiven by God or we are lost eternally. Understand? The only difference between, you know, those who spend an eternity in hell and those who spend an eternity in heaven. Listen, here's the deal. The one thing that we all have in common is that we have been sinners on this earth. That's facts. That's the unavoidable truth. That's the one thing that we, everybody forever all shares in common. Whether you live forever in hell or you live forever in heaven. Die forever in hell, let me just say. And live forever in heaven. We will all either spend eternity in one place or the other. And the one thing that we'll have in common is that we will have been great sinners on the earth. But the infinite difference between those in heaven and those in hell is this one thing. The forgiveness of sins which Christ alone can supply. That's it. That's it. We either are forgiven or lost eternally because we've all broken God's holy law. We've been created to glorify and worship God and honor him through obedience to his commands. We have failed. We have been, we have been given the Ten Commandments and we have broken them all. We have refused to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we've refused to love our neighbors as ourselves. The sad truth is, is that you have not kept God's law and neither have I. Right, And so here's the truth about us. Either we're forgiven or we suffer eternal death. Because sin is not some small thing. Our sin is filthy and it's got to be cleansed. Our sin is massive. It's a massive debt that's got to be paid. In fact, our sin's like a mountain. It's like a huge mountain that stands between us and God and it's got to be removed. And there's only one place. There's only one that can remove that mountain and there's only one place that forgiveness can be found and that's in Jesus Christ alone. Believing that he has the authority to forgive your sin in whole because he is God. An infinite love, man. Jesus, think about this. He has made a full and a complete payment for our sin. Suffering death in our place on the cross as a sacrifice in our stead, right? He's extinguished the wrath of God which we all deserve. As our Savior, he's done all and paid all and suffered all that was demanded to reconcile us to God. And he commands of us, repent of your sin and turn to me and believe. Believe. Believe in his finished work on the cross to receive the forgiveness of sins. And you know what? For those of us who know the depth and the gravity of our sins and we're trusting in Christ, there are no more comforting, no more encouraging, no more soul-nourishing words than your sins are forgiven. Right? What's better than that? And beloved, what a forgiveness it is, right? It is a full and a complete forgiveness. In fact, it's a forgiveness that is so complete, a pardon so complete, that every sin is completely blotted out and removed as far as the east is from the west, never to be seen again. That's good news, isn't it? I was thinking about this this week. Imagine if we were called, imagine if Jesus delivered us from 90.9% of our sins. 99.9% of our sins. And all we were called to account for was for a thousandth of our sins. Who could endure that? None of us. None of us. But Christ paid it all. Every bit of it. It's It's a free and an unconditional forgiveness. There's no price we pay, right? There's no merit that we've got to acquire in order to receive that forgiveness. Instead, it's like the words of Rock of Ages. I kind of wish we were saying it. We sung it Wednesday. But 
It's kind of like the words of Rock of Ages. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Amen. And he does. He does wash us, doesn't he? It's a forgiveness that's now and forever. Right? The, here's the thing about the salvation that Jesus gives. It's an eternal salvation. You know why? Because a pardon sealed with his blood can never be undone. The pardon sealed with the divine blood, the eternally you know, valuable blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is not one that can ever be undone. And it's a powerful, life-altering forgiveness. People who are forgiven by Christ don't stay the same any more than this paralytic stayed the same. Do they? Do they? No, man, when you experience the, the, the life-altering forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's that that makes you to hate sin and love Jesus. It's that that makes you to be humbled from your pride and to seek to please the one who has saved you, right? It is, it is the forgiveness that keeps a man or a woman in the book. It's a, it's a forgiveness that, that, that keeps us on our knees daily in prayer and devotion, praising Christ, making supplication, confessing sin, experiencing afresh the forgiveness and the fellowship of God in Christ. It is the experience of that forgiveness that makes us find true, true joy in the Lord Jesus, isn't it? It changes everything about you, everything about you. It's a forgiveness that leads a man or a woman to proclaim the way of forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ and that alone. If your sins are forgiven, no matter what else is going on in your life, if your sins are forgiven, no matter, no matter the trials or the hardships, no matter the sickness or the pain, no matter whatever's going on in your life right now or tomorrow or the day after that, you, you have a reason for joy. Because the one thing you need more than anything else, if you are in Christ, is already done for eternity. Praise God. That's it. We need to rejoice. Be thankful for the wonderful forgiveness that we have in Christ. The forgiveness that we experience on the day that we're saved and the experience, that, 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 that forgiveness that we walk in every single day as we do not walk in darkness, but we walk in the light and we confess our sins and we fight against temptation and we enjoy the fellowship of the Lord, fellowship that we can have because our sins, which were once scarlet, are now white as snow. And the last thing, the last thing is this. We ought to come away from this text, I think, with a heart to promote the right view of Christ and to glorify him before everybody. Why do I say that? What am I saying by that? Here's what I'm getting at. Beloved, we need to reject once and forever, once and for all, once and unto eternity. We need to reject this small view of Christ, this small view of Christ that's crept into the, 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 the evangelical church. We need to reject this small view of Christ that is, that is you know, rampant throughout our society, this small view of Christ and of his authority and his power, this small view of his divine majesty and his holiness, his mercy and his grace, the greatness and the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ that is so prevalent in our age. We need to like jettison that and replace it with a, with a God-eyed view of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And then live like it, man. 
Live like it. When we see the forgiveness of sins for what it is, right, really, for, for who alone can grant it, you know, and what it costs him to do so, Christ will become great in our eyes, won't he? When you think about that continually, when you, when you, when you ruminate and you meditate on everything that it took to make you a child of God if you're in Christ, man, it can't help but stoke your soul for Jesus, can it? You know, I, I'll, put it in a, in a, in a more, I'll put it in a more earthly, man. You know, when I think about, when I think about in my marriage, my wife, and I think about everything that she does to bless our family and to bless me, and there's a lot that she does. Like, there's a lot that goes unseen, you know, by a lot of people. But, but when I think about that, like, what, what draws my heart out to my wife is her character and the way that she pours herself out for other people. Now, I'm not saying that to, like, pump up my wife, and I'm not, this is not, you know, a fake T.D. Jakes moment. I'm, I'm making a point here for you. When I think and meditate, likewise, when I think and meditate on all that Christ has done in order to make me his own, and I'm telling you, it's not a small list. When I think about that, I can't help but love him. I can't help but say, you know what? Devotion to anyone else, supreme devotion to anybody else is stupidity. To serve him, it's not only an obligation because I've been redeemed, it is the greatest honor ever bestowed. And that's true for every Christian, not just People that are called to the ministry, quote unquote. Beloved, when we, when we really think about the glory of Christ, glory of his character and how he pours himself out for others, like this man who was once unforgiven and paralyzed, who was forgiven of his sins and, and given a new lease on life, got up and went home glorifying and exalting God. We'll do the same thing before a world that desperately needs to hear of his glory and grace. And you know what? We won't run out of things to say. And when you're in his word every day, when you're seeking his face in prayer, when you're really communing with the Lord, it's not like you run out of stuff to say, right? When you're really in love with your spouse, you don't run out of stuff to say. When you really delight in your kids, you know, you don't run out of stuff to say, do you? I hope you don't. You won't run out of stuff to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, you could sooner empty the ocean with a thimble than run out of what can be said about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let this account Drive us to speak of him to the lost and the paralyzed who don't even know that they are. And bring them to the only one with the authority to forgive sins. And who gladly does it. Who gladly does it. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Great Father God, we love you and we're thankful for this time. Lord, in your word. Thank you, Father, for the picture here of the primacy of the forgiveness of sins, the need for the forgiveness of sins, all of us. And we thank you for the very clear testimony of this text that Jesus, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins, has the authority and the dominion and the rule and the power to forgive sins. Lord, I pray that for those in this room that are believers, I pray that you would stir our hearts to remember the day in which, like this paralytic, we were freed from the, 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 the guilt and the stain of our sin and that we received a pardon full and free. I pray that we would remember that well and I pray that it would make us to rejoice in our hearts at the great at the greatness 
of the character and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would rejoice and exult and magnify, and that our hearts would be drawn to supreme devotion, allegiance, and obedience to the Lord Jesus. I pray that, you know, a a small view of Christ would forever be banished from our minds, and that we wouldn't tolerate, you know, small talk about Christ, but that we would give testimony to the glory and the majesty and the awesomeness and the wonder and the greatness and the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for those, Father, that are in this room today that have never come to faith in Christ. That, Father, for some reason or another, they're refusing to humble themselves before the Lord. I pray, God, that you would, you would humble their hearts before you by the sovereign act of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord God, that you would renew their dead hearts and give them life and take away the heart of stone and give them hearts of flesh so that they might trust in Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins while they yet can. Lord, I pray you move in our midst. I pray you lay to each heart, each person's heart, exactly, Lord God, what is of most need this morning from this text and that, Lord, we will respond in a way that testifies, you know, openly that your word is true. We love you. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.